a section here as we come to the end of our study in Luke. And you're looking for Luke chapter 24, uh, verse 36. Luke 24, verse 36, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. In fact, I'll, I'm going to start reading at verse 33 just to set the context from last week. Would you hear then God's uh, holy word from Luke 24, here starting in verse 33. They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. And they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish And he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is God's word for us today. Let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, as we come to your word, would you help us by the work of your spirit to behold wondrous things from your law, uh, that we would see Jesus, and that he would be king and savior in each of our hearts and lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, people today are people today are hungry desperate for something ultimate, something ultimate, something that would explain and give meaning to your newsfeed, something that would explain and give meaning to the question of where is this all heading? Is it heading anywhere? Something that would give meaning and purpose to human history something that would give meaning and purpose to what does it even mean to be a human and suffer and have joys and it's, what is this life? And everyone out there is arguing that they've found it. That they have found the way, the truth, and the life. And often it's the person saying it the loudest that gets the most followers Some think they've avoided the question, 
by some sort of nihilism that's, for instance, the point is there ain't no point, is one articulation. There really isn't a point. But do you see how that person is still telling you? Well, there is a point. It's just that there is no point. But, but really, this is um, a, philosophers are turning to the, the myth of Sisyphus. Are you familiar? Uh, Sisyphus in Greek mythology was, was punished for his great sin. You probably know the answer by uh, this stone that he was called upon to roll up a hill. And then what would happen when he got to the top? It would just roll back down. And he would have to do it again for all eternity. And some modern philosophers with this nihilistic view actually point to Sisyphus as, as heroic in the sense, uh, there's an Atlantic article that says, how to find joy in your a Sisyphean existence. It's a fun word. The, the subtitle, life is full of boring, futile, absurd tasks. You'll be happier if you can laugh at it all. So that the ultimate hero is the one that just gets up and just does it again. There's no purpose. It's more heroic because they don't need religion. They don't need purpose. It's just the stone in front of them pushing it up to only fall down again. Contrast that with a Christian theologian who says, History is not an endless succession of meaningless circles, but a directed movement toward one great end. If history has meaning and purpose and ends, so does my life and so does your life. And so our standards are willing to be bold enough to say, you were made to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. He didn't make you to push a stone over and over again, although there is monotony in life, certainly. Luke's gospel, uh, as we come to the end of the series, we, we could highlight so many themes that Luke has been bringing up for us, right? Uh, he has shown uh, the call to care for the poor and needy time and time again. He has highlighted men and women in the church and in discipleship. He has highlighted the kingdom of God. That might be a, a main theme in the Gospel of Luke. He has highlighted the cost of discipleship, the need for the Holy Spirit to open our hearts, uh, forgiveness of sins, true humility, true religion, and that Christ is God and man. I mean, the list could go on, right? Uh, the riches of this gospel. And yet, it's fitting that he ends here, the very bookend of his gospel, is that the gospel itself, the good news of Jesus Christ, is not just encouraging news to help balance out the bad. It's not just a good teaching to add to your shelf of other good teachings. It is ultimate. It is necessary. It is the very culmination of history itself. Jesus Christ of Nazareth had to come. Jesus had to die. Jesus had to rise again. Jesus had to give his spirit to his people. And now his people have to go to the ends of the earth. There is a glorious necessity of the gospel that if you will see it as Luke wants you to see, as the spirit wants you to see, you'll find meaning and purpose because it matches the very purpose that God has made you for, to glorify and to enjoy him. The very same purpose which has moved kingdoms and countries and wars and births and deaths and prayers. Would you come this morning and see the glorious necessity of the gospel?
we'll look at four points uh, as we think of this text. And, and the first is simply this. Uh, the Christ had to rise. He had to rise. He had to be risen from the dead. And let's look then at our text. Uh, of course, you'll, you'll remember the context here that uh, there was the resurrection appearance of Christ to the women at the, at the tomb, or sorry, the angels announcing it. Um, uh, then Peter runs to the tomb. Uh, as of yet, uh, no one has seen Christ uh, except Mary, we know from the Gospel of John. We get to the road to Emmaus from last week where two disciples are walking along the road discussing these things. Jesus conceals himself uh, and then reveals himself through the word, through uh, their meal at the table. And these same disciples then come and join the others that are in Jerusalem. And, and, and I've read those other verses because they say, Luke hasn't told us, he's bringing us up to speed. Uh, by the way, the Lord is risen indeed, as we say on Easter morning. Oh, and by the way, he appeared to Peter. And so that sets the context of, of our text here. Uh, they're, they're sitting around in this room talking about these things. And can you imagine, we know from the other Gospels, the door's locked and Jesus appears among them and says, um, peace to you. And they're startled. And they think, they're afraid. They think, what is happening? They, they think this must be a, a spirit. Now, it's interesting that just before that, they, it's not that they're doubting that Jesus was truly speaking or appearing to them. Uh, they had just said, no, the Lord is risen indeed. He appeared to Peter, right? So it's not as if this is their first time interacting and they think, oh, Jesus must still be dead. That's not the doubts that's rising in their hearts. And you start to see what Jesus is getting at. He wants to assure them, I am risen and I'm risen indeed. I am risen physically before you. Uh, you can see Jesus work in assuring their hearts, right? And, and, and you see at first, you know, they're frightened. He says to them, why are you troubled? And what does he point to? He says, see my hands and my feet. And so he wants to point them to, uh, he's in a glorious resurrected body, and yet the, it seems to indicate that the scars remain of this great event of history, the cross of Christ. And more than that, he invites them to, to touch his hands and his feet. Uh, can you imagine being the disciples? You know, they're, they're thinking, this is too good to be true. Yes, we're, we're seeing Jesus in some sense, but it, it can't be that he's alive, that everything he talked about is coming true. He must just be appearing to us in some temporary way. But Jesus is like, no, touch my hands and my feet. And I, and I love this. Uh, have you anything here to eat? <laughs> Jesus is always eating meals with his disciples. It's amazing. Even in his resurrected state, do you have anything to eat? And they're probably looking around uh, well, we got some fish, <laughs> and he eats the fish in front of them. Um, he wants to assure them he's truly risen. Uh, he is risen indeed. But you see in verse 41, I love that phrase. It says they, they disbelieved for joy and were marveling. It's, it's very similar to in Matthew 28 when the disciples see Jesus and he gives the great commission, and it says they worshiped, but some doubted. Um, or, or similar to elsewhere in the Gospels where the Father says, I believe, help my unbelief. The disciples here, they disbelieved for joy. Right? I think you know what that's like in your life when something is just too good to be true. Your brain is trained to say, plan for the worst and you'll never be disappointed. Right? 
so that worst case, something good happens and, and you could enjoy it. But best case, I was ready. <laughs> I was ready for the worst. And I think the disciples are in this camp. They also don't fully understand all these things. And so they're, they're seeing, they're feeling Jesus. They're about to watch him eat a piece of fish, and yet they're disbelieving for joy. On the one hand, they're saying, if this is true, this changes everything. He wasn't defeated and, and trapped in the grave. He is alive. And certainly some of his own words would be flooding into their minds, thinking, this is too good to be true. This would be amazing, but... I, I don't know, I, 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 can't, I can't be hurt again. I, I, I'm disbelieving for joy. Perhaps you've had one of those vivid dreams where you just, in the dream, you very viscerally lose a loved one. And, and it's so real, so much so that when you first wake up, it, it seems like there's this burden that I've lost this loved one and I need to, it, it feels like it's still part of your life temporarily. And then slowly reality kicks in and you realize, wait a minute, they're not dead. <laughs> I could call them right now. All of a sudden, the possibilities of that relationship with that person open up. Uh, the gospel is good like waking from that horrific dream to realize that life itself is in front of you here in the person of Jesus Christ with endless possibility of what he would do through the disciples. And so he as it were, he gives them empirical evidence. Touch me, feel, see, I'm truly risen. But he goes deeper, and he gives them a biblical foundation to understand what's happening here. And that points to the necessity of the gospel. Jesus says to them in, in verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Jesus then goes to uh, this biblical foundation and that designation, uh, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, uh, was a way of saying all of it. <laughs> Uh, the, the, the law of Moses, uh, uh, the Psalms, meaning the writings, like Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, the, the Psalms, more than just the Psalms, the, the, the poetic books, and then the prophetic books. He's saying, in our designation, Genesis to Malachi, it's all about me. Uh, Edmund Clowney puts it this way, and we'll be looking at his work more in the weeks to come as we, in, in our Advent series, we want to look at this, we want to dive in deep here and say, really, does the whole Old Testament point to Christ? He puts it this way, Jesus, therefore, beginning with the books of Moses and the prophets, explained from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He was not willing to show the disciples uh, uh, on the road that he was somehow alive, since in a chance universe, anything can happen. The good news is not that there was once a resurrection. The good news is that, uh, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised the third day according to the Scriptures. In other words, it's, it, it would be enough if Jesus were saying, let me prove to you that I'm truly alive. And it's good for us as Christians to prove to the watching world, no, Jesus was a real historical person and he really rose from the dead. Amen. We need to make those biblical arguments. But here he's showing the glorious necessity of it. It's not just that he happened to or plan B worked out. No, this was plan A. 
just to give a taste of this, Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the, and the woman, between the offspring of the serpent and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Speaking of Christ who would come one day, in Romans 16.20 it says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Or Exodus 12.21, Moses called to the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. John 1.29 says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Exodus 22 Uh, 20 verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Speaking of the exodus, the departure from Egypt. Luke 9, 31, as Jesus is transfigured on the mountain, uh, it says those who peered in glory with him, they spoke of his departure, or in Greek, his exodus, all that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Or Numbers 21, 8, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it up on a pole, and everyone who is bidden when he sees it shall live. And John 3.14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Deuteronomy 18.15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. And Luke 9.35, God speaks A voice from the cloud comes and says, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. 2 Samuel 7, 12, to David, God says, When your days are fulfilled, when you lie down, I will raise up your offspring after you. He who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Luke 1, 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Christ, the Son of God, the Son of David. Or Isaiah 53, 5, you know well. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Or another prophet, Ezekiel 34, 23, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. 1 Peter 2.25, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We could go on, right? When you read the Old Testament with this lens that Christ says, I have come as the fulfillment of everything. In the law, the prophets, the Psalms. It's, it's not just texts like this. That helps make it visceral. But it's all of it. <laughs> Clowney again puts it this way. Only God's revelation could maintain a drama that stretches over thousands of years as though they were days or hours. Only God's revelation can build a story where the end is anticipated from the beginning and where the guiding principle is not chance or fate but promise. Human authors may build fiction around a plot that they have devised, but only God can shape history itself to a real and ultimate purpose. The purpose of God from the beginning centers on his Son. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. All things were created by him and for him. Christ tells his disciples, 
I had to come. I had to die. I had to rise again. And it's not the end of the story. Point two, the gospel must be proclaimed. The gospel must be proclaimed. We'll fly through these other points, not because they're unimportant. They could each have a sermon of their own, but they're built on the foundation of everything we've just said. Christ opened the scripture to them, showed them that like a, like a tidal wave uh, that is washing over you right now, uh, the, the, the very streams of history have flowed to this point and are about to carry you in and out to the ends of the earth. Just as necessary as it was that Christ must die, must rise, it was just as necessary that the gospel would be proclaimed. In other words, Christ didn't do all the necessary work and then depart and say, get creative, church. I'll be back, but in the meantime, just do the best you can. No, he gave marching orders. We'll see he gave his spirit and power because who is sufficient for these things? And let's look at verse 47. He says, And that the repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And, and you are my witnesses of these things. He, he gives them the mission. History has meaning. Everything, disciples, has led to this point, And it's not over. And it's not over. The gospel will go to the very ends of the earth. Uh, my church will prevail in every age. Nations will rise and fall. Philosophies will come and go. My church will remain. My kingdom will go on until I come back for my people. History has meaning. You have purpose, and it's not found within yourself but from he who is the ancient of days, the one destined to come, the one sent by a premeditated plan of Father, Son, and Spirit before the foundation of time. That's what we're talking about here, disciples. And you're my witnesses. It starts with the apostles, unique uh, in, in, in the redemptive history that they were eyewitnesses, that they were empowered by the Spirit. They give us the New Testament. And now all of our work in the Great Commission and the church and worship is built upon the Old and New Testament given to us by God. And the message, their message is still our message. The repentance for forgiveness of sins is proclaimed now to the very ends of the earth. As you're a testament to, here we are on the, best co the West Coast, and you're hearing the gospel. This gospel that was preached by uh, an, an Israeli Jewish rabbi, you're hearing it now. It's proving Christ's words even now. And friend, I would ask you, as we come now to, to the end of our study in the Gospel of Luke, never the end of our study of the Gospel in every book of the Bible that we'll look at, but as we come to the end here, I would ask you, do you not see that this is necessary? That only Christ gives meaning to history. Only Christ gives an answer to that nagging sense of guilt that you carry on your back before a holy God. Do you not see that it was necessary that he would go to the cross, that he would die in your place? Does not your heart burn within you as you hear of this Jesus, risen, about to ascend, sending his spirit? Has the spirit opened your eyes this morning to hunger and thirst for him? Then receive him, rest upon him, 
alone. Forsake all other philosophies. Forsake all other self-helps. Come to Christ. Don't push against this wave of history that God has been working, but be carried away by it. Repent and believe, and you will find life in Jesus Christ. That's the message the apostles gave. That's the message we continue to preach, and we will preach to the end of time. Number three, the Spirit then must be given. The Spirit must be given. He says in verse 49, Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Don't you love that? The Spirit is called the promise of the Father. Jesus has promised many times. In the Gospel of John, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's actually to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And so we see that the Spirit is sent by the Father. The Spirit is sent by the Son. And Luke will go on in his sequel in the book of Acts to really show this moment when, when the Spirit, uh, like tongues of fire, comes upon the church at Pentecost so that the church is never the same again. Uh, the Spirit's presence is, is so radically interwoven, empowering the work of the church you know, we, we receive that mission, that great commission, and, and we rightly say, who is sufficient for these things? But Jesus himself, God himself, gives us what we need. He empowers us with his spirit to comfort us, to assure us, to strengthen us, to kill sin in our lives. We'll spend so much more time meditating on who the spirit is, but just see that just as necessary as it was, that the gospel go to the ends of the earth. It is just as necessary that the Spirit would come in power upon his church. And lastly, the Christ had to ascend. He had to ascend. Verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Just as surely as Christ had to die, just as necessary is that he would ascend to his Father and your Father, to his God and your God. And it's good that we remember every sort of step along the way that the Gospels give us, that he, he lived, that he died, that he died a death on a cross, that he was buried, that he truly rose physically, and then he ascended to his Father's side, and that he was seated then in power as King of kings and Lord of lords. That means that when we think of this tidal wave of redemptive history, all of the biggest pieces have already happened. The Spirit now has been poured out on the church. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And now we are waiting, actively waiting, empowered by the Spirit, preaching the gospel, living, dying for this faith, until the next big event, which is that Christ would come back for his people. And that he would establish his rule and reign physically, fully, 
and all of these things. Romans tells us the creation itself is longing for that day. Everything now, uh, the biggest crest of the wave has already come over and we're awaiting that final day. And the amazing thing is that just as we speak of being united with Christ and his death, right, that we, in a sense, we died with him. He died for our sins. We, we rose with him. We have new life in us and one day fully resurrected bodies like his. We're also united with him in his ascension. Not in the unique way that he is, in the unique way that he's king of kings, but Ephesians 1, for instance, tells us And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him up from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And and often Paul and others will speak of our inheritance future, but also, uh, no, look to uh, the the blessings that you have in the heavenly places. You have been seated with him. You are co-heirs of Christ. Fulfilling finally what, even at the beginning of the Bible, go and, 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 and multiply, fill the earth. Jesus puts it this way in his high priestly prayer. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. To be with him where he is. Christian, you have died with him. The power of sin, the guilt of sin, gone. One day the presence of sin, done away with. You have risen with him to newness of life. You're a new creation. And and one day fully, when uh, Jesus, who is the first fruits, will have a body like his, a physical body in the new heavens and new earth. You have also ascended with him where he is. You are citizens of heaven. You are praying thy kingdom come. You are ever ever living to please the king until he comes again, seeing the gospel go to the nations. And so as you abide in him, you will have all you need, life, strength, grace, fortitude, to carry out everything that he calls you to do. We said that people today are hungry, desperate for something ultimate. It has led some people to look to Sisyphus or to say the point is there is no point, but we've seen something different this morning. Something not just beautiful and not just defensible or logic, logical, though it is all of those things, but something necessary. The good news of Christ, the very apex of history. And what does this bring about for those who embrace this Christ and this gospel? We see from our text at the end, it brings about a life of worship, a life of joy, a life of blessing in Christ, a life of fellowship, a life of purpose, a life, as as Jesus said, which really is life itself. Christ indeed for them was more than they could ever hope for, too good to be true, and yet standing in front of them and then ascended to the Father. Their lives, history, all of it had meaning again. And I pray that it would for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. That it unfolds to us Jesus Christ himself, the word of God. I pray, Lord, that he would be enthroned in our lives, in our hearts, more and more. That our lives and our deaths would proclaim this gospel to the very ends of the earth. I pray this in Jesus' name.